Almighty Father, will you grant us grace now as we consider uh, this story from the gospel? Will you grant us clarity of mind? Will you uh, bring up the questions that we need to be asking? Will you uh, address this text and its message to the particular area of our life uh, that, that we need it in, if I could say it that way? Uh, so we ask that you will, um, you will uh, make this word specific to each one of us. Open our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And it'd be great if you would keep the gospel reading open in front of you. One of the, um, one of the striking things about Jesus is that Jesus, if you read through the gospels, you can see this all over the place, he regularly recruits pretty bad people. Um, I, very often people uh, think that religion is primarily for good people. That might be true of some religious movements. But Jesus is kind of infamous for taking some of the least likely people and then calling them to follow him, transforming their lives very profoundly, and then making them his spokespeople um, for just a couple, a couple examples. Uh, my guess is everybody here knows the hymn Amazing Grace, right? Many of us will also know that that hymn, which is right at the top of the charts, right, in terms of Christian songs, that hymn was written by somebody who had been involved in the slave trade. In fact, right when he was in the middle of being involved in the slave trade is when uh, he began considering Jesus and then became a Jesus follower and then years uh, later, over the course of years, his life was deeply transformed. And he ended up writing a song that captures the heart of Christianity so well that it's almost impossible to be a Christian without knowing Amazing Grace. And he was also involved in, in supporting abolition later in his life. But it brings up a question for me, and the question is, what does it tell us about Jesus that, that a slave trader, it doesn't get worse than that, does it, can become one of his most important spokespersons? I mean, I would imagine that there would be a good argument for boycotting the song simply because it was written by a man like John Newton. Or another example is from our gospel reading. It won't be quite as sharp to us, but uh, Jesus is walking by a tax booth, and um, there was you know, a tax collector there called Matthew. Tax collectors were notorious corru notoriously corrupt. Everybody hated them. And yet Jesus specifically recruits this apparently corrupt tax collector collector called Matthew, and Christian tradition has always said that that corrupt tax collector, his life was transformed, and he ended up writing the Gospel of Matthew, which is the text that we're reading today. Now again, consider what that means about Jesus. One of the four official records of Jesus' life was written by a man whom everybody in his day would have agreed was a corrupt official. What does that tell us about Jesus? 
Why would Jesus trust somebody like that? Why would he recruit somebody like that? Why would Jesus allow somebody like that to become his spokesman? Now, here's why I'm asking that question. I'm asking that question because the answer to it opens up insight into the very heart of Jesus' message and his mission. And it's all what our text is about today. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to go through this story from the gospel, and I want to point out three things that answer this question. Why does Jesus recruit very bad people and turn them and transform them into his spokespeople? Here's the first one. There's going to be three, but here's the first one. Jesus seeks out sinners like a doctor seeks out the sick. Let me show you. Take a look at verse 9 in the Gospel reading. This is page 10. A little bit of context here. Jesus is getting really popular in uh, Palestine. He's already a public figure, and he's traveling through the countryside, and he comes to a tax booth. Now, um, when you went from one district to another at that time, they would have a little customs booth, and they would take some of your wealth as you cross the border. And so that's probably what this was. And like I said before, everybody hated the customs officers, right? Which is, let's face it, they're easy to hate, right? Uh, Nobody likes a tax collector. But it was even worse than it is, you know, I mean, we just don't like taxes. But it was much worse then. And they hated the tax collectors partially because they were collaborating with the Roman government, which is to say they were traitors, or at least they were viewed that way. But then they were also hated because they were notoriously corrupt. They were kind of like loan sharks with an army behind them. Not nice people. And so there's Matthew sitting in his tax collector uh, desk. And he's heard of Jesus. Like I said, Jesus is a public figure. But he also knows that Matthew knows enough to know that he's the last person Jesus is going to care about. And then, beyond all expectation, Jesus is there in front of him, possibly paying his own taxes, and Jesus looks into the eyes of Matthew, and he looks at him and he says, Matthew, get up. Come with me. Follow me now. And remarkably, Matthew gets up, quits his job, and follows Jesus. I sometimes wonder if he got up so quickly because he was afraid Jesus would take it back, you know? But in any event, he goes with him. Now, that's a very interesting scene. We'll come back to it in a few minutes. But first, I want you to think about the party. Did you catch the party? Matthew, the first thing he does as a new Jesus follower is he throws a party for Jesus. And he invites all of his tax collector friends. And so you've got this great scene where at the party, you've got Jesus and his disciples, Matthew being the latest recruit, with the most religiously disqualified group of people in that culture. And they're all hanging out together and interacting with each other. And it's fantastic. Now, pause, and I want you to think about that party. Because that party is one of the best images for understanding the mission of Jesus. Here's why I say that. In this party at Matthew's house, there are these two images that come together. And you've got to see how the images come together in order to understand Jesus' mission. On the one hand, the party is clearly all about relationship, right? It's all about friendship. 
But then on the other hand, the party ends up also being a hospital. And you've got to see how those two things interact. Let me show you. First of all, the party is all about relationship. And this is where the Pharisees get really, really offended. The Pharisees were kind of like the clergy of the day, sort of. And they're really offended that Jesus is hanging out at this party. And part of the reason they're offended is because they end up having a completely different view of God than Jesus does. So in their understanding of God, and it wasn't entirely wrong, they understood that God had standards, uh, moral standards, ritual standards, religious standards, and that he expected people to perform up to those standards, and if you did, then you were in, and if you didn't, you weren't. Now, in that understanding, just take a moment and notice that relationship is not the main thing there. The main thing is performance, not relationship. And so, they were offended at Jesus at this party because they thought that Jesus was, were, was betraying those standards by befriending these people. But this is where Jesus takes their view of God and starts to flip it over. Because Jesus, so to speak, says that, he says, listen, God isn't just somebody up in the sky who throws down demands at us and says, hey, perform up. Rather, Jesus says, God is somebody who gets up off of his throne and searches out people who hate him in order to seek them out, find them, and bring them into a reconciled friendship with himself. Now, do you see how that inverts the Pharisees' understanding of God? It's no longer that we reach up to God, it's that God reaches down to us in order to befriend us and bring us to himself, which is why the party is a perfect image of Jesus' mission. And you could actually, we don't have time, but you could trace through the theme of party from one end of the Bible to the other. It's one of God's favorite ways of describing what he's on about. Jesus came to establish a relationship with people who don't do God, who aren't interested in him, and therefore this party was the perfect place for him to be on about that mission. But then, not only is the party about relationship, it's also, right in the middle of it, it turns into a hospital. Take a look at verse 12. But when Jesus heard how the Pharisees were offended, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, a doctor, but those who are sick do. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's a quote from the Old Testament where God is saying that I, he says, I care more about relationship than I do about ritual. And then the punchline comes at the end. Jesus says, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now look at what Jesus does. He says, Listen, this is not just a regular party. Regular parties are great, but this is also a hospital. And Jesus says, I am the doctor of the human soul. And it's as if Jesus says the deepest spiritual illness is caused by a broken relationship with God. And Jesus says, I have come to heal that illness. Now, pause and think with me for a second. Um, what do you think the point of religion is? right? Various of us will have different answers, right? Um, some will say, well, it's kind of to teach us morality. Some will say, well, the best thing it does is it gives us art or aesthetics, maybe. Um, some of us will say, actually, there's really no point to it at all. 
Um, Jesus thinks that the heart of real religion is relationship. And that it's a relationship that has been broken. And that relationship needs to be healed. And this is where the image shifts. That, that relationship needs to be healed. And so Jesus comes like this glorious doctors without borders, comes and seeks out not the spiritually healthy or those that think they are, but rather those who know that they are spiritually ill. And he heals them fundamentally by introducing them to the relationship with God which they have rejected all their lives. Now, quick sidebar uh, for those of us who are Jesus followers here. Um, one of the things that this means for, for us is that if you're a Jesus follower, your friendships are gifts from Jesus to be used for his mission. Um, many of us, many of our closest friends will be folks who share our love for the Lord, and that's right. But it's also important to remember that Jesus expects us to cultivate friendships with people who are very different from us and who disagree with us and actually who do not like Jesus that much. Um, another way to put it is that if we're going to follow Jesus, we must be very wary of our tribalisms. Um, in our society, we, we tend to get very tribal. And we, you can see that in politics pretty easily. We only hang out with people we agree with sometimes. Um, but as Jesus followers, we must be very suspicious of that. The closer we are to Jesus, the more he will drive us to love people who are difficult to love and to love people who disagree with us. So go with that. All right. Why does Jesus recruit people you don't expect. Well, the first is because he's a doctor who wants to heal. The second reason, however, is that he's a doctor who diagnoses and treats, very courageously, our deepest disease. Take a look at verse 2. Verse 2, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, interesting, the faith of the friends, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Now, this is Jesus the doctor, and this is where we get to see him in the operating theater. And what I find interesting is that at least at first, Jesus, is, Jesus sort of ignores this paralytic's obvious physical problem, right? Isn't that a bit odd? Um, Jesus is famous as a healer. Clearly, this guy needs healing. And all of a sudden, he completely overlooks that, at least for the moment, and forgives him of his sin. Now, I'm curious, how does that strike you? I think Jesus is being very offensive here. I mean, he was clearly offensive to the scribes, to the kind of like clergy academics. Um, but he was offend offending them because in their minds, only God could heal and so, or only God could forgive. And so if Jesus was forgiving, then he was acting like God. He was claiming to be God. One of the things that oftentimes in the Gospels, when people are most offended by Jesus, it's not because they misunderstand him. <laughs> it's because they're actually listening. Um, my guess is that 
I don't know if that offends you or not, but it, my guess is that we're offended by something else. At least I am. I think Jesus is very troubling because he looks at this man, this paralyzed man, and he appears to peer into this man's heart, and he says, in effect, you have a bigger problem than your illness. He says, you have a deeper problem, deeper disease, even than your paralysis. And he says, in so many words, with, he doesn't need to say all this, but this is, all of this is implied. He says, you've rejected God in a variety of different ways, and therefore, Jesus says, you need pardon and reconciliation and Jesus says, that's where my treatment plan starts. And I think that's terribly troubling because I want to say exactly what the scribes said. The scribes are saying, who are you to forgive this man's sins? And what I want to say is, who are you to call me a sinner? But look back at Jesus. Look back at how kind he is. Jesus isn't being self-righteous here. He's not being judgmental. He's acting like a doctor. And a good doctor never tolerates a threatening disease. And I think this is one of the places Jesus challenges us. Because I like the image of Jesus hanging out with sinners, right? I like the image of the party. That sounds like fun. Sounds attractive to me. Um, but as true as that is, we've also got to see that Jesus never overlooks the problem of sin, the problem of a breach in relationship with God. And he sees it like a doctor sees a terminal illness. He just goes straight for it. And later in Jesus' life, it becomes clear Jesus is so committed to uh, combating sin that he willingly gives his life to destroy it. On the cross, we believe that Jesus took upon himself the disease of sin and died under its weight and then rose again with the power to release us from it. He takes it very seriously. I think we hate being called sinners, at least I do, because I hate the idea of being judged. And I hate the idea of being judged because being judged feels like the opposite of love. And so I recoil away from it. But when Jesus sees into our hearts, can you see it here? When he sees into our hearts, he looks into our lives with infinite love. Do you notice how kind he is to the paralytic? Look, look back at the, the verse. He says, the very first thing he says to this man is, take heart, my son. You can almost see a smile on Jesus' face. Your sins are forgiven. There's no cruelty in that. It's full of tender love. And then he follows up these words with demonstration. He heals the man's legs, proving that he's not just a talker, he's a doer. How do you relate to all this? I mean, imagine that you had a doctor who loved you infinitely and who knew you better than you know yourself and could diagnose you instantly, far better than you could ever self-diagnose. Wouldn't you trust a doctor like that? And that's who Jesus is for us. 
One of the things that that means is that when you follow Jesus, you must expect that Jesus will regularly bring up issues in your life that he wants to deal with that you would rather ignore. Right? Does he do that in your life? And when that happens, it can be very frightening. Jesus was frightening. Verse 8. But when that happens, don't avoid it. Invite it. Because as frightening as it is to let Jesus into those troubling places, it is the path to joy. Glance down at verse 8 again. Do you notice how the crowds respond? They feel two things at the same time. They're afraid and they're delighted all at the same time. And that's the way it happens. There is something thrilling, frighteningly thrilling, to find yourself being healed by Jesus Christ and then to find, to be able to look out and watch Jesus Christ do that in other people's lives too. You remember John Newton, the slave trader, former slave trader. Years later, he was reflecting on his life and this whole dynamic of transformation that God works in people. And he wrote this. He says, God seems to select some in order to show the exceeding riches of his grace and the greatness of his mighty power. And God allows the natural rebellion in these people and their wickedness of heart to grow to full scope. And as it were, they study their own destruction. But then at length, the Lord is pleased to pluck them as brands out of the fire and to make them, I love this, monuments of his mercy for the encouragement of others. They are beyond all expectation, convinced and pardoned and changed. A case of this sort indicates a divine power no less than the creation of the world. It is evidently the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in the eyes of all who are not blinded by prejudice and unbelief. I love the phrase that he uses, monuments of God's mercy. Friends, wherever you're at, Jesus wants you to know that joy of being a monument of his mercy. Do you know that joy? Some of us have very little joy in our Christian life, and, and very often... The reason for that is that we find ourselves resisting Jesus' treatment plan. We, we want to hide our sin. We want to hide from Jesus. We want to self-justify. We want to say, this area of my life is okay, Jesus. Don't touch it. And if that's where you're at, let me just say, there is joy in becoming a monument of his mercy. That leads us to the very last thing. Why does Jesus call very unlikely people. Well, he's a doctor, so he seeks out the sick. Secondly, he diagnoses and treats our deepest illness, this alienation from God. But then thirdly, and lastly, he apprentices those whom he heals. Verse 9. Think about Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector, he's a corrupt tax collector, healed by Jesus. And that means he becomes the perfect candidate to become Jesus' apprentice. So when Jesus says, Matthew, follow me, he doesn't mean just physically travel with me. He means orient your life, Matthew, around imitating me, obeying me, and representing me to others. And years later, Matthew ended up representing Jesus by writing down Jesus' story. And it's this text we're reading from now. 
And the thing is, Matthew was the perfect person to write the gospel. And the reason for that is that you can only describe the healing of Jesus when you yourself have experienced it. Which is the exact same reason why John Newton was a perfect candidate to write Amazing Grace. Why would Jesus ever allow a a slave trader, to have anything to do with a song that is going to be so impacting on so many people's lives. The reason is, only a wretch. And that's what he was, can see and describe just how amazing God's grace is. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. A good person who thinks they're good will never write that line. And so Jesus sought out these people because they were sick in the midst of their brokenness with God. And then he healed them through forgiveness. He didn't leave them there. He transformed them so that they could bless others and represent his healing to others. So they could become his apprentice. So here's my question to you. Is Jesus apprenticing you? Put differently, is Jesus training you in his healing practice? And are you open to that? Some of us have been Christians for a very long time, but you've never considered the fact that Jesus may be calling you to participate in representing him to other people and extending healing through the good news of pardon, forgiveness, and transformation. But that's where Jesus wants to take you. And in order to go there, you've got to be healed yourself. You've got to take those areas that you're hiding, that Jesus is, you know, saying, hey, what about that? You've got to stop hiding it. You've got to bring it out into the open. You've got to be healed and loved into your areas of worst shame and most tight protection. Because then you'll be able to say, I have been healed by Jesus, and I know what it is. Let me describe it to you. And then your friendships with people within the church, beyond the church, people who like Jesus, people who don't like Jesus, all of those friendships become opportunities where you can serve them by representing Jesus, by loving them when they're hard to love, by appointing them not to yourself but to Jesus, to to taking those times where they trust you but not Jesus and to say, Jesus is worthy of your trust. He's kind and good. And that's when you'll have the honor of becoming Jesus' unlikely representative. Amen?